You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so we are um, starting a set of sermons called Advent. Um, typically on the church calendar, uh, the four Sundays preceding Christmas is the Advent season. And Advent comes from an old Latin word meaning arrival. And so it's really a season where the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ gets to think about the coming of Jesus. And as a Christian in 2016, we've kind of got two angles that we're looking at that from. On one hand, we're looking back at, at what happened 2000 years ago as Jesus came for the first time as a little baby in a manger, lived a perfect life for us, died on the cross for our sin, risen from the dead on the third day. So we get this great chance of looking back upon that story. And at the same time, we are also caught in the middle of the two comings of Jesus. So we've got one that we're looking back on, and we've got another coming of Jesus that we're anticipating in the future, when Jesus is going to come back to continue and to complete the rescuing and redeeming work that he began 2,000 years ago. So we get the chance over the next couple of weeks to think about these sorts of themes, the Coming of Jesus. So with that, let me, let me kind of introduce uh, this set of sermons. By the way, we're calling it a promise, uh, Advent, A Promise Kept. And if you want the title for today, um, the title of today's sermon is A Promise Made. A Promise Made. And let me just start um, this entire set of sermons um, kind of with an analogy and kind of a, a, an appropriate lead-in. Um, to the men in the room who are married, I don't know if you would share this same sort of a thing, uh, you know, when you think about your wife, but... Um, I have a wife who uh, has a penchant for chick flicks. She likes them. Just saying, she likes them. It's not my preferred movie, but she is all about um, that sort of a movie. And it would not be an uncommon occurrence early on in our marriage for her to invite a living room full of ladies over and uh, for them to pop in a chick flick and to, to do that thing, you know? So, I mean, they're just in the living room watching that, that movie. And now I, I would make the terrible mistake periodically of coming into the living room in the climatic kind of big moments of that movie. And you can just imagine the scene when you walk into a living room full of ladies in that big climatic moment. I mean, you just look at the, I didn't even need to look at the movie. I'm just looking at their faces and their eyes are doing this thing. Their cheeks are doing this thing. Their mouth is doing this thing. Their lips are kind of quivering. You can just tell that that lump is right there in their throat. And everything about their face is saying, I need to cry so bad. I mean, mascara is just starting to kind of get all messed up around their eyes. I mean, it's, it's just to that point where a good cry is needed. And I just remember thinking, walking into that living room, I would look, you know, I looked at them and I mean, it's just this big emotional moment that I looked at this movie and there's like a couple of people hugging or something. And I'm like, what, what is going on here? Like, how is that producing this? I mean, just that thing is happening. And then about a decade ago, it was Valentine's Day and I took Laura out on a big Valentine's date. And uh, in an act of true love, we decided we're going to a movie and we're gonna watch The Notebook. <laughs> it, is, it is happening. Now that's, again, that's not my preferred movie. I am much more into the movies with a higher body count than that. And so, so we get there and, uh, you know, it's Valentine's Day. This is going to be a moment of like sacrificial love, whatever you want. I'm in for what you want. And evidently, like every other husband on the planet was thinking the same thing. We have tickets, but when we get into the theater, it is so packed that we can't find two seats together. So we, okay, just picture the scene. 
It's Valentine's Day. We're, we're going to watch the notebook on Valentine's Day. And we're going to watch the notebook on the floor in the theater. That, that's the scene that's set up here. So as the story unfolds, you know, the, the, the setting is introduced. The characters are introduced. There is conflict and tension kind of embedded into the plot. And that's kind of the moment where the plot clots, you know? I mean, if you think about like a story's development, that tension and conflict are like so important to it. And then it gets to the big moment. I mean, we climb the mountain up to the big moment in the story. And I couldn't believe what happened next. My face started kind of doing that thing. <laughs> My eyes started doing that thing. This lump kind of raises in my throat. And I'm literally to that moment where everything inside of me is screaming, I need a good cry right now. <laughs> I mean, it needs to happen right now. And here's the thing that I learned in that moment. I learned that to understand and appreciate the climatic point or scene in any story, you have to know the background. You have to know the buildup. That's, that's what makes the big moment the big moment. You know, if I would have walked into that, that you know, the big, if I would have just, you know, not seen the, 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 uh, the kind of lead up or the background of that story, and I would have just, if I would have walked into that theater, like, I, and I'm going to walk in and see myself in that theater, and I walk into the big moment of that movie, and I'm watching me cry, and then I'm watching an older couple hug each other, I would be the first to slap myself in that moment, Right? But if you're sitting in that theater and you watch the background, you watch the lead up of that moment to what, you know, the, all the, the background, the tension, all that, that this climatic moment is relieving, you would be right there crying with me, right? The background is so important. Without the background of the story, without the buildup of the story, without understanding the characters and the plot development and the tension of the story, it robs the, the big climatic moment of its power. But when you see the background of the story, when you have the buildup, when you're seeing the plot clot, all those things kind of happen, it infuses that big climatic moment with all sorts of powerful energy and emotion, right? That's how stories work. Now, let that be the intro to the Advent series. I think one of the problems we have when we think about the Advent story, the Christmas story, that robs it of its power and significance is we have this way of thinking about the Advent story like this. Where does it start? Well, it starts in a manger. And if your answer to the question, where does the Advent story start? If the answer to your question is, it starts in a manger a couple thousand years ago, the openings of the gospels. If that's in your mind, where the story starts, no wonder the Advent story doesn't move you in the way that it should. Here's the fundamental thing that we've got to kind of understand as we start the Advent story. The Advent story doesn't start in a dingy manger on the outskirts of Bethlehem. The Advent story starts in a garden in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's the beginning of the Advent story. So here is my goal this morning. I want to just help us think through the, the, the plot development here, where, where the story starts, how the story is introed, where the story gets its tension, where the problem that's got to be solved in the story is. I want to help you see the background and the buildup so that hopefully in the weeks to come as we think about the coming of Jesus, that moment then can explode with the life and energy that the Lord would have it explode with in your life. So we're going to think through the background and buildup of the story. So that starts all the way back in Genesis 1. So if you just have your Bible open there, all the way to the opening pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Here are the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. 
Now that's a really important fourth word, in the beginning, God. That is showing us who the main character of the story is. We are not the main characters of the story. God has always been the main character of the story. The Bible is about God primarily. God has always been, he is, and he will always be. Back behind the history of mankind, the first four words of the Bible show us, stand a God who is orchestrating and directing every single thing, things like elections, things like the rise and falls of kingdoms. He is directing everything to his good purposes. So in the beginning, God. Then it tells us something about what God did. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So from the beginning, we see this beautiful picture of God. In the beginning, God, and this God is doing something. He is creating everything that you see, God has created. So when you leave today and you look up and you see the beauty of a cloud, Tonight, if you pay attention, you see the beauty of a sunset with its multicolored, just all of these vibrant, rich colors in it. When you drive home today and you see the beauty of the fall colors on trees, the Bible is saying all of that is the handiwork of God. God is the creator behind all of those things. God created it all. Then you come down to Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 27. And you see God creating our first parents, Adam and Eve. And God puts them in a perfectly prepared garden. It's perfectly prepared for them to inhabit it. Then you get to verse 20 or 31. And it says that God just really kind of takes a step back from his creation and God pronounces over his creation, this is very good. That this is exactly the way I want it. In Genesis chapter one, you have the beauty of sex without the perversion of pornography. You've got the goodness of food without the perversion of gluttony. You've got the beauty and, and the goodness of rest without the perversion of laziness. You've got money and possessions, the goodness of money and possessions to enjoy without the perversion of greed. You've got the goodness of wine without the, the perversion of drunkenness. In Genesis 1 and 2, here's what you have presented. You have a God who has given our first parents every single thing they need to flourish as human beings. He has lavished them with every single thing they need to be content and satisfied in him. Then you get to the middle of Genesis chapter two in Genesis chapter two, verse 15. And God gives them the, the one basic command. I want you to work the garden and to keep it. A lot of scholars will interpret that as I want you to worship and obey me. God is cluing them into their major purpose, like why God has created them. I want you to worship and obey me. This is the reason that I've made you to worship and obey me. Then you get the one prohibition. In Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, God looks at our first parents and says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You see how gracious God is how big hearted and kind hearted he is. He says, you see all of these things that I've prepared, you can go and enjoy all of these things. Have at it, man, you can just enjoy it all. Then the one prohibition, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So here's what we've got in the first two chapters. We've got the beginning of the story. God has created all things that we see, created our first parents, given them everything they need to flourish as human beings. For the first two chapters of the Bible, the story is going great. And it goes great until you get to chapter three. And in chapter three is where you have the introduction of the problem. Our problem is introduced in Genesis chapter three. This is the first thing that we see. This is where the plot clot. This is where the tension is raised. This is where the conflict is inserted into the story. Our problem, if you just wanna like summarize our problem, it is a sin problem. We have a massive issue. Our problem is a sin problem. You see it in the first six chapters of Genesis chapter three. Let me read those for you here. 
says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So you, you know, it's kind of got that ominous beginnings to chapter three. You should read that and just be thinking, uh-oh, this probably isn't gonna go good. The serpent who was more crafty than any other beast, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, did God really say that to you? What would God be thinking to say that to you? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, isn't that interesting? The first place that the first pushback theologically to God in the scriptures is on God's judgment of mankind. It's the first place that Satan pushes back. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will surely be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and then it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he also ate. It's so interesting, in six tragic verses, Satan had the ability to convince fully satisfied people that they were starving. To convince people that, that God had just created them, put them in the midst of a garden and said, enjoy it all. I mean, take all of my provision for you and enjoy it. And now Satan in six verses has convinced them that somehow God is holding back on them. Surely God's judgment of you is not gonna be true for you. Surely the effects of sin, what God has said to be true about sin, surely that's not going to apply to sin. Surely it's not gonna be that bad. In six tragic verses, they go from fully satisfied in God to thinking they are starving to death and in the, really the most catastrophic event that has ever happened in the history of mankind, they sink their teeth into this forbidden fruit. Now, let's just think about Genesis 3 and ask the question, what do we see in Genesis 3 about the immediate effects of this sin? Like what instantly do we see happening in Genesis 3? And let me just run down through a, a few of the things that we see immediately happen once they break the flesh of this fruit. In verse seven, the next verse, they eat of it. And then the next thing that happens is, is in verse seven. For the first time, they felt a sense of nakedness. Now, what is that? They are feeling that the repercussions of sin, they are feeling the guilt of sin. They are feeling the exposing shame of sin. But for the first time, they are feeling the feelings that are associated with sin, guilt and shame. They're feeling naked. The second part of verse seven, you see the beginnings of their self-salvation project. Rather than turning to God in their sin, who, who he alone could help them in their sin, Rather than turning back to God in their sin, they turn to their own self-effort. So they look around and they, they, they ask the question, how can I regain what I just lost? That sense of okayness before God that I just felt before verse six, how can I regain that after verse six? So they look around, they find some fig leaves and they patch together these fig leaves in an effort to patch together a new sense of righteousness, a new sense of feeling okay. It's this self-salvation project through fig leaves that we see in verse seven. Then you find verse eight, God comes to them and they hide from God. Now, now what is happening there? Isn't it interesting that in this first sin, one of the effects of it is they went from feeling very open with, with the Lord. Like I can trust God. 
I I love God. I'm open to God. I can trust him. He's going to do good to me. All this is going to be great between us to being very close and to have like a distrust between them and God. That's an effect of sin. We carry that with us today. So when God comes to them, rather than coming out in the open and saying, God, here I am. What do you want? When do you want it? I'm here for you. Now they're hiding from God in the trees. In verses 12 and 13, you see blame shifting. It's so interesting. God confronts them in their sin. And what does the man do when confronted in his sin? God, this is not my fault. This is her fault. She's the one to blame for this. Now, how many times has that been repeated in the history of mankind since then? God, it's not my fault. It's her fault. It's their fault. What what does Eve do? She looks at God and says, no, no, God, it's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. He's the one that made me do this. You got blame shifting. And just what has been followed a billion times in the course of human history. That's verses 12 and 13. Then you get to verse 15 and you get the pronouncement of a curse from God on the serpent, the woman, and the man. So you get the judgment of God because of their sin coming out. In verse 16, you've got the judgment of the woman. Due to their sin, God brings down a right judgment on the lady. And here is the judgment for not only Eve, but for all of her descendants afterward. He says, your your childbirth is now gonna be painful. It's not gonna be easy anymore. Now, I've never experienced that directly, but just from an outside perspective, watching that thing go down, I would agree, it is really painful. That is a hard thing to go through. So childbirth is gonna be painful. And then he says, there's gonna be conflict in your marriage. And this marriage between you and Adam, it's gonna be hard. And really you could probably just like loop in every friendship is gonna be that. There's gonna be conflict in your friendships now, in your marriage now. Um, one commentator, uh, just thinking about verses 16, or verse 16, he said, you know, it's interesting. He said, to love and to cherish, it's the vows that we take when, we're, you know, when we marry someone, to love and to cherish has now become to desire and dominate. That's the predominant mood now and disposition that people have in their marriages. So that's the judgment of the woman. Then you get to verses 17 and 18 and you have the judgment on man. In verses 17 and 18, um, God pronounces over man. He says, your work is now going to work against you. There's gonna be thorns and thistles that complicate your work. It's always gonna feel like you're never on top of your work. It's always gonna feel like there's something else to do. There's always gonna be something about your work that's working against you. The next time work feels hard for you, just remember this thought. That's the effect of the, the, the fall. That is in a straight line from Genesis 3 and it is impacting your life right now today. Work is going to work against you. Then in verse 19, The Lord looks at the man and he says, now, you know what's going to happen? You're going to physically die. Physical death is now the new and unnatural norm for all of mankind. Now now think about that. When someone dies, now think about why do we die physically? The Bible's answer to why do we die physically goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in this moment where our first parents ate the forbidden fruit. That's the reason. It's the introduction of sin into the world and God's judgment over sin. That's the reason that we have a new and unnatural norm called physical death. Then you get to verses 23 and 24 and you've got the judgment of spiritual alienation. When God looks at our first parents and he says, you can no longer remain in my presence in the garden because of your sin. You are now cast out of the garden. And God sets up this flaming angel, you're right, with a flaming sword, looking every which way to make sure that our first parents cannot, and we as their descendants cannot enter back into his presence. One commentator thinking about verses 23 and 24 said it like this, every detail of the verse 
with its flame and sword and the turning every way, actively excludes the sinner. His way back is more than hard. It is resisted. Summation, he says this, man cannot save himself. Man is in a predicament now because of the fall that he cannot fix on his own. Man is in a situation that he cannot remedy by his own self-will. Now, when it, it, just imagine you reading the Bible for the first time and you read the first three chapters of the Bible. It starts so good in the first two chapters and you get to chapter three and everything falls apart in chapter three. It should now spark the question, what in the world is gonna happen to mankind apart from God? East of Eden, out of the presence of God, apart from God, what is going to happen to man? Answer, the story of mankind instantly sinks into deep sadness. Four verses later, in Genesis chapter four, verse eight, you can follow along and read it there. In Genesis four, verse eight, it says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. So Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Inserted now into the story is rebellion, jealousy, insecurity, bitterness, anger, murder, all parts of the story of humanity now. Then you get to to chapter six. And in chapter six, the world that had started out in in chapter one as God stepping back and saying, this is good. What I've created is very good. This is great. Now in chapter six, in verses five and six, the Lord looks upon his creation now and sees and says something much different about it. He says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And listen to what he says about man's wickedness. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. Could you have a worse statement? I mean, could you have, could you have God saying anything more severe about the condition of humanity? He looks out and says, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord was grieved, verse six says, that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Isn't it humbling and scary to know that God has a way of looking past our external behavior? God is not primarily concerned with our external behavior. God has a way of looking past our external behavior all the way down into our hearts. Now, the heart in the Bible is like the control center of a human being. It's our thinking. It's our emotions. It's, it's, all of, it's our decision-making. It's all, that's the heart. And, and the Bible says he is looking all, he's looking behind their actions all the way down into their heart. And here's the pronouncement on humanity post the fall. Their thoughts are only on evil all of the time. And when God saw that, it grieved him. It broke his big heart into pieces in Genesis chapter six. Then in an act of righteous judgment in Genesis six, God floods the earth and starts over with Noah. Now, Noah is a man that the Bible says is blameless. He's holy. He's a man that walks with God. So he starts over with Noah and his descendants. And if you get to chapter six, you might be thinking, okay, we've had the terrible moment in Genesis three, but now we're starting over and surely this is gonna go well with Noah and his descendants. Surely they're gonna follow God. Surely they're gonna walk with God. So the question becomes, how long are they gonna walk with God? For about two minutes. That's about how long they're gonna walk with God, right? You get to, to Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, these are the descendants of Noah, right? So uh, of this man who was blameless, who was walking with the Lord, the descendants of Noah, then they, the descendants of Noah said, 
Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Isn't that interesting that the people that Isaiah chapter 43 says are created that they might glorify God? that they might be a reflection of the worth and value and greatness of God. Those people who are created for the glory of God have now turned so inward that all they can think about is their own glory. These people who were created to reflect God and all of his goodness are now thinking not about God, but how can we reflect our goodness to the world? How can we show the world how awesome we are? And then as you read forward from Genesis chapter 11, here's what you'll find on every page of the Bible you'll find blood on every single page. It is the sinking sadness of the story of humanity. Now in Ephesians chapter two, we have a commentary about Genesis three. Ephesians chapter two is, a, is Paul's commentary on, okay, so what are the effects of the fall? What are the effects of our first parents eating that forbidden fruit and introducing sin into the world? What happened in that moment? Here is how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter two, the first three verses. Paul says this, here's the effects of Genesis three. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is commentary on the effects of Genesis 3. Now, let me just sum up Ephesians chapter 2 on the effects of the fall in a couple of, of statements. Here, here's a few of the things Paul is telling us that happened in Genesis chapter three. Number one, because of Genesis chapter three, Paul says, we are dead in our sin. This is the human condition. When you come out of the womb, we are dead in our sin. Now, what does it mean to be dead? I, I, the, the easiest way I would summarize that is it's, it means you're unresponsive. You're unresponsive. That's what it means to be dead. So then we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be dead in our sin? That means that we are spiritually unresponsive to God. That, that we have, our heart is not capable of responding to God. It is incapable. It's not just that we're wounded in our sin, but we can still kind of do a few things. It's we're dead in our sin, that we are incapable of responding to God. We cannot do it. If we have the choice before us of God on one hand and sin on the other, our hearts are incapable of choosing God and they will always choose sin. This is what it means to be dead in our sin. It's impossible for a human being to cherish and love God for who he is. We'll always cherish and love lesser things and treat them as God. That is the human condition. We are dead in our sin. Then he goes on. We're not, the effects of the fall are not just that we are dead in our sin, we are that, we're dead in our sin, but we're also enslaved to our sin. Look, look at what it says here in, in Ephesians 2. It says that we're following the course of this world. We're following it. We're enslaved to it. It goes on, we're following the prince of the power of the air. That's, that's the devil, that's Satan. We're following him, we're enslaved to him. Then it goes on to say, we all once lived. You could just supply the word following. What we're living in or following in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, Paul just laid out our three great enemies. The flesh, it's that internal part of us that's at war with God. The flesh, the world, and the devil. That, that same serpent that we saw in Genesis chapter three. 
Those are our three great enemies. And Paul says that just like Pharaoh in the story of Exodus, they are our ruthless taskmasters that enslave us. And, and it's not like we can break ourselves free from them. They're our slave masters and we are bound to them. We are following them. Here are the effects of the fall. Here's the effects of Genesis 3. We are dead in our sin. We are enslaved to our sin. And then Paul goes on and clarifies this. We are also condemned in our sin. Genesis 3 pronounces in God's judgment our condemnation in our sin. Verse 3 of Ephesians 2 for me is one of the, the scariest passages in the Bible. Here's what Ephesians chapter three, or chapter two, verse three says, the last two phrases. It says, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is saying that because of Genesis three, because of sin introduced into the world that we are now implicit in, that we have all sinned along with our first parents. Because of, of, of sin, every human being that is born, when you come out of the womb, you are on a collision course with the wrath of God, that there will be a day where we stand before God and hear pronounced over our life, condemned, sentenced to eternal death. Now it's interesting, like in, in our 21st century world, the, just talk of the wrath of God does not land very good on our modern kind of 21st century ears, you know? Uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said that the great myth of the 21st century is that there is no wrath in God. It's the great myth of the 21st century. And that is a myth. The Bible does not present a God who is wrathless. Like, think of the wrath of God as a twin attribute to the love of God. Because God is love, because he loves the things that are right and good and holy, he also hates the things that are not right and good and holy. That is the wrath of God. So, so what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's settled resolve to righteously judge all sin. The wrath of God is God's settled resolve to righteously judge all sin. And Paul is saying, this is where history is headed. History is headed to a moment before God where God will righteously deal with all sin. He's resolved to do that. This is going to happen. History is headed there. When we come out of the womb, we are set on a collision course to someday standing before God and this moment going down for us to bear God's wrath for our sin. By the way, that we deserve, that we have actually rebelled against him. We, we deserve that. And this is where we're all headed. Now, let me just sum up what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 and what Genesis 3 is showing us. Here is the summation of, of, of our problem, our sin problem. The summation of our problem is that we are so deep in a problem. Our sin problem is so deep and wide that we do not have the capacity to get out of it on our own. We are in too big of a mess to clean it up. Now, here is what human beings naturally think when we find ourselves in a mess. Just think about the last time you were in a mess. Here's what you naturally probably thought when you found yourself in a mess. You know what I got to get to work to do right now? I've got to get to work getting myself out of this mess. So I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to do that thing and I'm going to work this way and I'm going to work that way and eventually I'm going to get myself out of the mess. That is the default way that human beings think. That's exactly like Adam and Eve think in Genesis, or thought in Genesis chapter 3. 
But what the Bible is showing us is our sin problem is too deep for us to work out of. And when we try to like get out of our hole of sin and, and guilt, when we try to do that, we actually just deepen the hole. When we try to get out of the mess and clean up our own mess, we just make things more messy. This is what the Bible is showing us. Um, years ago, I heard a preacher uh, talk about this moment he had with one of his sons. His son was about two and a half years old at the time. And uh, they were in their house and uh, his son was just playing somewhere in the house. And he just hadn't heard like a scream in a while, like something fall and break in a while, something go bad in a while, something happen in a while. He just hadn't heard something in a while. And like any good parent, you know something instinctively in that moment, don't you? Something's wrong. As of right now, this kid is into some trouble somewhere doing something he shouldn't be doing. Well, he you know, goes on a search for him and he finds his two and a half year old boy. This boy could like barely walk at this point. He finds his two and a half year old boy up on the kitchen counter. Don't really know how he got there. Doesn't really know that, but he's, he's up on the kitchen counter. But he's not just up on the kitchen counter. He has a knife in his, like one of their sharp knives in his hand up on the kitchen counter. And you would think that a two and a half year old boy would probably grab the knife by the, by the, by, you know, by the handle. You would think that, but of course he's not gonna do that, right? So he's up on the counter with the knife in his hand and he has grabbed the, the blade portion of the knife and he's squeezing the blade portion of the knife. Now, if you can just imagine if you're the dad and you walk into that kitchen, you see the picture? Your two and a half year old boy is up on that counter. He's got a knife in his hand and he's grabbing the wrong side of the knife, what would you do? Here's what I would do. Here's what he did. He looked at his son and said, wait right there, I'll come and get you. Now, if you want the promise of Christmas, there it is. We're in a mess that we can't get out of. We're the two and a half year old boy up on the counter holding the wrong end of the knife, one wrong move, and we probably die right there. And God looks at us in the mess of our sin and says, wait right there. I'll come and get you. You, you just hold tight. You, the mess is too big for you to clean up. So I'll come and help you. I'll come and get you. Wait right there. So we have this great problem. And here is the great news of the Christmas story. God has an even greater promise. That is the news of the Christmas story, that God is looking at us and he, in our sin problem, in the mess of our sin, and he looks at us and he says, I'm gonna enter into the wreckage of your sin myself. Wait right there, I'll come and get you. That is the story of Christmas. The baby in a manger is about God looking at us in our mess and saying, it's too big for you to clean up. You don't have the capacity to clean it up, but I can and I will. Wait right there, I'll come and get you. Now, let me just end by showing you two of the promises made in Genesis chapter three. Genesis three exposes the mess of our sin and Genesis three is the moment where God makes to us a massive promise. Here are the two promises of Genesis chapter three. Promise number one, God looks at us and says, wait right there, I'll come and get you. I'm gonna come and I'm going to destroy the works of the devil. Wait right there. I'll come and get you. I'm going to undo what the devil has done. I'll come and get you. I'm going to come and make this thing right. Now, where does God do that? Look at Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, cursing the serpent. I will put enmity, hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
And one of her offspring, he is gonna bruise or crush your head, Satan, the serpent. And you, Satan, the serpent, you're gonna bruise his heel. Now, scholars will call this the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. The, the first big promise made in the Bible. And it's interesting to think about that in the midst of cursing and bringing down judgment on Satan, the woman and the man, in the middle of doing that, God looks at us and says, but there's a promise in there. I, I'm not just judging you in this moment. I'm also making a promise that one day I'm gonna come and get you and I'm gonna come and help you. And it's interesting to me when I think about this first promise that it is primarily directed towards Satan. That, that is the, the, the bullseye around this promise is on Satan. God is looking at us and saying, I'm gonna undo his work, all that he has done. It's gonna one day be undone by me. I'm promising you that I will do that. Now, when you think of Satan, I think Pharaoh is one of the types of Satan in the Old Testament. You know, now think about that, that, that type. If you think about the story of Exodus, what do we learn about Pharaoh and the people of Israel? Here is one thing that we learn. Pharaoh is way, way too powerful for the people of Israel to free themselves from his power. It's not like they can just walk into Pharaoh and say, hey, Pharaoh, um, we're leaving. They can't do that. Pharaoh looks at them and says, no, you're not leaving. You can't just walk out of here. And he had the power to keep them there. They were enslaved by Pharaoh without the potential, without the capacity to free themselves from him. Their only hope of getting freed from Pharaoh was for God to come in and do a miracle. That was their only hope. And as the story of the people of Israel go in Egypt, so goes our story today. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones a British you know, a preacher over in Britain in the last century, one of the greatest preachers of the last century. Listen to, to what he says about this verse. He says, man and woman left to themselves are absolutely hopeless and helpless in the hands of the devil. In other words, there is no way that you're going to, going, uh, going to free yourself from his grasp from power and enslavement. You don't have the ability to do that. But in Genesis 3.15, God looks at us and says, hey, wait right there. You're up on the counter, knife in hand, Satan controlling everything about you. Wait right there. I'll come and get you. That's the first promise we see in Genesis 3. And here's the second promise we see. We see God looking at us and saying, not only will I destroy the works of Satan, I'll also destroy the works of sin. I'll destroy the works of sin. East of Eden, what are we to do with our sin? What are we to do with our sin that has separated us from God? What are we to do with our sin that has alienated us from God? What are we to do with our sin that has accrued the wrath of God in our life? What are we to do with, with this sin? Our first parents answered it like this. Adam and Eve answered that question like this. Here's what we're to do. We're gonna get some, some self-effort going and we're gonna patch up our righteousness and we're gonna try to regain what we lost by ourselves. We're gonna leave God out of this and we're gonna to get to work doing stuff, doing enough good things that we're gonna regain the approval of God. And the Bible over and over again says, there is no amount of your good doing that will ever regain God's approval. It will never happen. But what is God's answer to that question? God gives his answer in Genesis chapter 3, 20 and 21. God says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And here's our picture of God's provision for our sin. And the Lord God made for, for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What did God do to cover the nakedness that our first parents felt? 
to cover the dirtiness and shame and guilt of their sin, God slayed something. And then that thing that was slayed was then used to cover their nakedness, to clothe them. Now, what does God do to cover your sin and my sin? God slays something and he uses what has been slayed to cover and cleanse us of our sin. When you read forward in the Old Testament, you see the, this promise that God will one day send someone to cover our sin, to be pierced and slayed for our sin. You begin to see that promise take shape. When you read forward to Isaiah chapter 53, verses four and five, here's what we find. Surely he, that he is this one that has been promised by God that he would send one day. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon this one that I will send, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. God is saying, I'm gonna send one and that one is gonna be me. And I'm gonna enter into the wreckage of your life and me, God in the flesh, Jesus. I'm gonna be born in a little manger. I'm gonna live a perfect life in place of your sin. I'm gonna die on a cross, risen from the dead on the third day. I'm gonna be bruised for your iniquities. I'm gonna be laid low because of your sin. On Jesus is going to fall the chastisement of all of our sin, the wrath of all of our sin. This is God's promise to us. God is looking at us and saying, wait right there. I'm going to come and help you. I'm going to do to your sin what you could never do to your sin. I'm going to undo the effects of sin that you could never undo on your own. If you don't own a Jesus Storybook Bible and you have little kids in your house, you should go get one today at the resource table. Let me read for you and we'll finish with this, how the Jesus Storybook Bible ends this story of Genesis chapter three. It goes like this. Before they, our first parents, Adam and Eve, left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be like this. It will not always be so. You cast out of the garden, you cast out of my presence. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And it ends like this. And he would. One day, God himself would come. My friends, that's the promise of Christmas. Let's pray together. I'm gonna give you just a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. The story of Christmas doesn't start in a manger. It starts in a garden. And in that garden, we learn that we have a problem with sin that we just can't fix. A spiritually dead person cannot by their own doing make their heart beat again for God. A person enslaved cannot overthrow their ruling master. 
a person condemned in their sin by their own doing cannot fix the coming wrath of God. But in Genesis 3, where we learn we have such a great problem, we also learn that God has made a great promise. He will send one to undo the work of Satan and the work of sin. And we have the benefit of living on this side of the cross of Christ where we get to look back and we get to celebrate God in the person and work of Jesus, born in a manger, lived in our place, lived perfectly, fulfilling every one of God's commands died for our sin, bruised, smitten, and afflicted for our sin. All of God's wrath for our sin being poured out on him, risen from the dead on the third day, showing God's satisfaction in the sacrifice of his son. So that now the way back into fellowship with God is reopened. The way through the wrath of God has been made. It has been made in the person and work of Jesus so that now all of those who throw up their hands in faith, turning from their sins, throwing their life upon Jesus, holding up their life before God the Father and saying, I am trusting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to solve my sin problem. We now are welcomed back into the family of God. For all of those who by faith hold up their life and say that to God, they are now adopted into the family of God. The presence of God reestablished in their life. The, the, the curse of sin being undone in their life. The enslavement of sin being overthrown in their life. So this morning, do you see your great need for the promise? This is where Christmas starts. Do you see your great need? Our greatest need this morning is to see our great need. That's the greatest need that you have. It's the greatest need that I have. And that great need can only be fixed, can only be solved in Jesus. So this is our moment to respond to him. If you this morning are here and for the first time, you need to make that decisive step toward Jesus. What better morning than this morning to do that, to start Advent 2016 in that way. And if that's you this morning, we just wanna, as a church family, say, man, we wanna encourage you to throw your life upon him this morning to receive Jesus, the, the solution to our problem. And if that's you, you could fill out that card under your seat. Check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus. Put that card in the offering basket here in a few minutes. And we would love to celebrate with you and to follow up with you. And for the rest of us in the room, what, what would be the appropriate ways for you to respond to God this morning? Is there sin that needs to be confessed? Is there a dullness to God that needs to be brought before him? Is there a numbness to the things of the Lord that needs to be opened up to God? So Father, would you help us this morning respond appropriately? God, would you help us? God, would you 
Would you bring our hearts alive to the promise of Christmas, to you looking at us in our great need and saying, wait right there, I'll come and get you. I'll come and get you. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.